The future of work isn't about shareholder value, technology, metrics, or automation. It's about being human and putting people first through actionable love. Welcome to the Love in Action podcast, where we hold deep conversations with extraordinary people to help you grow as a leader and expand your business. When it comes to optimizing performance, it's all about maximizing potential of your leaders. Ally Business Coaching can give you the practical edge you seek. Ally Business Coaching, building great leaders inside great companies. Visit them at allybusinesscoaching.com. Here's your host, Marcel Schwantes. Welcome to another episode of the Love in Action podcast, where we bring you the world's most brilliant thinkers and experts to talk about how to make your business and workplace be both good for people and for profits. On this show, we're not ashamed of talking about what the autocratic and bureaucratic business world perceives as soft and unfitting. And that is creating human-centered, inspiring, daring, and courageous workplaces through the powerhouse principles of love and care. In a new book called Humanocracy, Creating Organizations as Amazing as the People Inside Them, which is going to be released on August 18, world-renowned business thinker Gary Hamill and management expert Michele Zanini make a passionate data-driven argument for getting rid of bureaucracy from your companies and replacing it with something better, something Gary and McKaylee call humanocracy. So if you want advice on how to uproot bureaucracy and unleash the human spirit at work, this book is for you. And well, this episode is for you because Gary is here and he's going to share some of the building blocks of creating organizations as amazing as the people inside them. Gary Hamill is a longtime faculty member of the London Business School. He has authored 20 articles for the Harvard Business Review and published five books, including The Future of Management, which was named Amazon's Business Book of the Year. The Wall Street Journal ranked Gary as the world's most influential business thinker. And as a consultant, Gary has helped the world's most respected companies increase their capacity for innovation and strategic renewal. And together with his co-author, Gary is the co-founder of the Management Lab, an organization that builds technology and tools to support breakthrough management innovation. Gary, it's great to have you. Welcome to the Love in Action podcast. Yeah, great to be here, Marcel. Thank you so much. So we start, how fitting is this, with a human moment? And that is what makes you smile when you get up in the morning these days, Gary? You know, I'm, I just feel like privileged every day to have work that I feel is meaningful. I don't work in a bureaucratic organization. I feel free to innovate and do whatever my interest and my heart takes me. And I think that's pretty cool to be able to do that. So I'm certainly grateful for that. I'm grateful for an amazing family that I have around me. Uh, brothers, my dad at 101 is still alive. So there's a lot to be thankful for, even in the midst of the challenging times in which we find ourselves. Yeah. And we were talking uh, before we hit record about your dad's age. And yes, he is still doing quite well. Is, is that right? 
That's absolutely true. World War II vet in Britain during the Blitz and is doing really well. I find that fascinating. Thanks for sharing that moment of your personal life. I appreciate that. So I want to get listeners acquainted to the business side of what you do and what gets you up in the morning. What would you say is your purpose and your why? Let me tell a story that will kind of illustrate this. This goes back quite a few decades. I'll tell you two quick stories. I was a PhD student at the University of Michigan in the late 1970s. And that was the first time that American business really got hammered by global competition, principally new Japanese competitors taking on the U.S. auto industry. I saw what happened in neighborhoods and communities when companies missed the future. I saw the personal costs of poor executive decisions of what happens when a leadership team takes refuge in, in denial or arrogance or nostalgia. And that really, really struck me that business this is not this intellectual exercise. It's not just about making money, that millions of people's lives are critically dependent on the capacity of our organizations to be resilient, to move forward, to embrace the future. And so that took what, what up till that time had been primarily an intellectual pursuit of thinking about business and really made it very, very personal to me. And I realized that building organizations that are resilient and future-focused, that has a, a huge positive impact in people's lives. I think the other thing, Marcel, that hit me, this is a decade or two later when I was working in a large Midwestern manufacturing company. We, we trained about 30,000 people there how to think like business innovators, including unionized hourly employees. And I remember one instance, a, a woman happened to be an African-American woman, had come up with a brilliant idea after this training for something that would ultimately be a multi-million dollar business. And we took over the interior space of a suburban shopping mall one weekend, and we had employees in there with the prototypes of their ideas, sharing them with their neighbors, getting feedback. And I remember this woman sitting there next to her idea. Her kids were there looking at her. You know, She was proud. They were proud. And I thought to myself, that's probably the first time in this woman's career who'd worked on the assembly line that somebody asked her to innovate, that somebody said, you know, give us your imagination. And she was so excited to do that. And it hit me. What an extraordinary amount of human capacity we waste in our organizations. And, and if I could be part of any small effort to unleash that, that was going to be extraordinarily rewarding. So those two moments really connected kind of the business side and the human side of organizations has kind of fired me up ever since. Mm. And obviously, that's why you wrote the book. And the question that I wanted to ask you is why this book is specifically why now? And I think you answered the question, but give it a shot. Why did you write this book in this time of age? Yeah, let me start. I mean, because I worked in and around large organizations for a long time, what's really struck me, Marcel, is that many of them suffer from the same set of disabilities. You know, years ago, I wrote an article called The Core Competence of the Corporation. And I, I thought, you know, over the last few years, if I was writing that again, I might call it the core incompetence of the corporation. Because Wherever I go, public, private, large, small, you see organizations that tend to be inertial. They struggle with change. They often change behind the curve and in the midst of crisis. Organizations that are pretty incremental, that really are not very good at rule-breaking innovation. And most of all, organizations that are inhuman, that really don't capture the best of people. And so that kind of has led me on a quest to understand why, despite the industry, despite the company, why do organizations suffer from these same disabilities? And when most of the people I know do not have those disabilities, you know, most of the people I know, they're incredibly resilient. You know, they change careers, they go back to school, they take vacations in new places, they retrain, they take personal risks. And so the people I meet are daring and resilient and so on, but the organizations that they work in, not so much. And so that's what I wanted to change. And that was really the thought behind the book. Yeah, it is a page turner and there's so much research behind it that informs how to go from bureaucracy to humanocracy. So before I dive into the concepts and ideas of humanocracy, I feel like we need to shed some light on its counterpart, which is bureaucracy, 
first. And there's a tremendous cost to doing business with a bureaucratic organization. And Gary, not just financial cost. What are some examples of the cost of that? Well, you know, for sure, you know, we see organizations around us that struggle to keep up, that struggle to adapt. I mean, it's interesting, Marcel, if you look at almost any industry and you look at who's really created the new businesses, the new business models, it's new companies, right? The incumbents struggle to change. In fact, deep change is usually episodic and crisis-driven. And I think part of that is a product of those old bureaucratic structures, right? A bureaucracy is based on the idea of hierarchy. And in that hierarchy, the people who are really responsible for seeing the future and for change are at the top. And unfortunately, by the time an issue is big enough to capture the scarce attention of the people at the top, it's almost always too late, which is why most change programs are actually catch-up programs. And today, our world is so complex, it's moving so fast that no small group of people sitting at the top have the cognitive capacity, really, to, to see the future coming, to prepare for it. So that's kind of, you know, the competitive cost, if you like. You're just going to get caught behind. And I think a, a lot of executives these days are learning a new definition of hopelessness, and that's trying to win in a networked world with a hierarchical organization. It just doesn't work. But the human cost, I think, is even greater, obviously related. Let me share some data. One of the yes. things, Marcel, I came across this data quite a while ago and then was kind of stunned that it has hardly changed in 60 years. So Gallup reports that, depending on the survey, it's somewhere between about 13 and 17% of employees are engaged at work. So that are really bringing their passion, their creativity, their initiative to work every day. So you think about that, and there's, there's a bigger percentage that are actively disengaged. Those are the maliciously compliant. And everybody else is just kind of showing up and going through the motions. And so you think about these, how in the world did we end up with organizations where less than one in five people really is bringing all of themselves to work? And there's a lot of other data that backs this up. We know, for example, that only one in five employees believes their opinions matter at work. We know that only one in 10 believe they're free to experiment and try new things at work. The U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics calculates that 70% of all jobs in the United States require little or no originality. And that says nothing about the people in those jobs, but it says something about the way those jobs are constructed and the opportunity people have to grow and learn and contribute. And so it seems to me that when you look at the data, it's not a stretch to conclude that most organizations waste more human capacity than they use. And of course, that waste doesn't show up on any P&L, right? It doesn't show up in the productivity data but there's this enormous capacity that we have that we're simply not using. We also know, one last bit of data, we know that bureaucracy is growing, not declining. If you look in the U.S., the size of what I would call the bureaucratic class, the number of managers, administrators, supervisors, and so on in the, in the U.S. workforce, that job category, managers, administrators, that has grown since 1983. That has more than doubled the number of people with roles like that. All other kinds of employment has gone up less than 50%. So our economy is becoming more bureaucratic rather than less. And I can't help but think that that is related to the decline in productivity growth because productivity growth in the U.S. and across the OECD has been declining now for about 20 years with profound implications for our ability to raise standards of living, to solve income inequality. So there's a competitive reason to care about this, which is building organizations that are capable of outrunning the future. But there's a human reason, which is really unlocking all of this latent capacity that bureaucracy just never accesses. Hmm. So let's talk about the fact that, well, both of us are in, in the world where we're, we want to get rid of bureaucracy because it just stifles the human spirit. So for us to dismantle bureaucracy, 
It also means that you have to dismantle the traditional power structure that is still so prevalent today, right, Gary? I mean, the old guard is just not going to give that up. So can you dismantle bureaucracy that's embedded in a power structure? I mean, can it really be done? It's a great question, Marcel. I can tell you, it will not happen easily. I'll tell you a little story, and then let's talk about the conceptual part of this. You know, when I think in 2013, when Pope Francis became the pontiff, he vowed that he was going to make the Catholic Church much more responsive to parishioners and much more open than it was. And he wanted to drive bureaucracy out of the curia and out of the upper echelons of the church. And he promised to do this in a very kind of radical, bold statement. And yet, a few months ago, he said that when it came to busting bureaucracy, he felt like he was trying to clean the sphinx with a toothbrush. And, you know, so, so if you're the Pope and you still can't do this, like, what hope is there for the rest of us? So you're absolutely right, you know. And it's also important to note, though, Marcel, that, you know, bureaucracy was invented for a reason. You know, bureaucracy was actually was one of the most important human inventions probably ever. It allowed us to bring people together to do things at scale, to improve productivity and so on. And yet, like all technologies, it's kind of a product of its time. If you go back 150 years ago when it was invented, the average employee was almost illiterate. And so you needed these ranks of these people called managers to wrangle all the employees and make sure that goals were set and variances were, were looked at and so on. But that's not the world we live in anymore. We have educated people. We can move data around. Everybody can be equipped to be a manager right where they are. Having said that, in those old bureaucratic models, it was a game. It was like a massive multiplayer game. And people played the game for positional power. The way you got ahead was to climb the, the greasy pole of bureaucracy. And that meant learning, you know, getting good at being a bureaucratic infighter. It meant learning how to negotiate targets, how to manage up, how to hoard resources how to deflect blame. And if you've spent 10 or 20 years learning how to play that game and accumulating the positional power and all the prerogatives that go with that, and somebody comes and says, hey, we now have to change the game. You need to go from manager to mentor. We are going to go from having five or six or eight layers down to having one or two. That's a pretty disconcerting thing to tell somebody. But here's the thing. Gallup will also tell you that managers are even less engaged than their employees. Because nobody wakes up in the morning saying, I want to micromanage like <laughs> everybody around me, right? Nobody wants to get up and say, today, I got to act like a parent, except these are not 13-year-olds, these are adults. And so it's a pretty sucky job to have to do that every day. And yet bureaucracy kind of demands that of leaders because it's, it's so disempowered employees, leaders have to step into that role. And what mm-hmm. we find through our experience, Marcel, is when you start to change that, everybody's work gets better. You know, the leaders that are there, they have time to mentor. They have time to worry about bigger problems. They have time to build the people around them. And you're out of that role of being kind of enforcer in chief, which like, I don't really know anybody that enjoys that. Having said that, it's still a pretty difficult transition for some people because you built those skills, you built those reflexes. And so kind of wringing that out of you, we kind of take leaders through what I call bureaucratic detox, where you start to look at you know, where am I acting out of that old frame? Where do I treat human beings like resources? Where am I elbowing rivals out of my way so I can go up? You know, when am I manipulating data to massage my boss's ego, right? These all become natural instincts. And you have to look at yourself and say, gee, I like, I'm not really comfortable with being that kind of a person. And then start to weed, weed that out of you. You know, we'll talk more about this, but I think it also requires building a pro-change constituency my example of Pope Francis was carefully chosen because I meet a lot of leaders. And you think that a CEO has all this power and all this influence. 
But no CEO has enough hours in the day and enough energy to go one by one by one to all their EVPs or VPs and convince them to change the way they're leading and change their behavior. Like, you're never going to win at that. So I meet a lot of CEOs are deeply frustrated that they cannot change their organization in a deep way. So kind of my solution to that is you have to go to everybody in an organization. You have to open this problem up. And we've done this in organizations where we've invited thousands of people to come hack that old management model. And what you find when you have hundreds or thousands of people saying, this is not working for me, this is destroying value, this is not the right thing for our customers, then no small group of people at the top can stand in the way and say, like, no, we're just going to hold on to the old model. So you need a progressive-minded leader for sure, but you also need people throughout the organization who are ready to stand up and say, we want to change this, and we're not going to wait for somebody else. And if you do that, you'll pressurize the system and things will start to change. Mm. That's interesting to me. Yeah, it starts with a champion at the top, but if there's no champion, I've seen it happen at the middle management level where people will take the initiative and pass the torch. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, I'm dying to dive in now to humanocracy, so let's explore it. First, what's your definition of it? So again, the best definition is probably one in which I contrast that with the old model. You know, as a social technology, bureaucracy was built to maximize conformance. And so the goal was how do we turn human beings into semi-programmable robots? How do we get them to, you know, observe the budget standards, the work standards, and so on? And by the way, control is a very important part of any organization. I don't want to underplay this. You know, you think about it today with our smartphones. I think the next generation of the iPhone is going to have a chip in it that is built to five nanometer tolerances. And I think five nanometers is the distance your fingernail will grow in the next five seconds. So you think of the amount of control you need over so many variables to produce something of like such extraordinary mind-bending precision. So control is not a bad thing. You don't want the person putting together your iPhone just to like wing it and figure out, oh, I'm going to do it different this time. But having said that, you know, like all ideologies, the ideology of controlism has probably slipped the bounds of common sense today and it becomes its kind of own thing. You know, I think of, of how crazy it is that the average employee who can buy a car, maybe even buy a house at work, they can't buy a $300 office chair without getting somebody's permission. It's like insane. And so the old model was built to maximize control. It was very good at doing that. Hmm. Humanocracy, by contrast, is aimed at maximizing contribution, recognizing that you still have control. There's still some boundaries. It's not a free-for-all, but where the goal is within those boundaries to maximize the capacity of people to invent, to learn, to grow, rather than simply making sure they're all coloring inside the lines. Yeah. Okay. So paint a picture for me here. This is going to be a fun question. Let's say that I am a new employee. Maybe it's my first week on the job. Okay. How do I know that I have walked into an organization that practices humanocracy? I mean, what am I going to see? What am I going to hear? What will I experience the first few days or weeks on the job? Well, that's a a really great question, Marcel, because I think that's how you know whether this is rhetoric, it's real. You know, what do people feel when they show up there, particularly if they come from a new organization? So several things I think. Number one, people are going to talk about the organization as family. And you're going to hear people talk about how much they care about their colleagues. You're going to find there are a lot of long-serving employees there. You'll see that attrition is fairly low. I think number two, the leaders, the managers that talk to are going to start by trying to learn your story, right? They're not going to start by telling you about the company and telling you what you need to do. They're really going to take the time, the trouble to learn about who you are. Where do you come from? What are your dreams? What are you hoping to accomplish in this job, number two? I think number three, very early on, at whatever level you are, you're going to get trained to be a business thinker in that organization. They're going to teach you about the economics and what drives success. 
and treat you as an adult and somebody who's going to make an important contribution. You'll also find in those organizations that every position is taken seriously, that there's no kind of internal caste system. Herb Kelleher, the pioneering founder of Southwest Airlines, and they are definitely a kind of humanocratic organization. Herb Keller said, no position is more important than another position. Everyone's contribution is equally critical. And you will feel that. You will feel that, you know, you're not kind of a substandard employee because you're on the front lines. So I think it's very quickly, how does my boss talk to me? Do they treat me as somebody who's important to the business? Are they training me to think like a a business person? Do I have the autonomy to make? You will know within a day or two or a week at most whether this company really is built around the idea that everybody's contribution matters or whether it's built around an assumption that a lot of people at work are simply resources and you're there to do as you're told and suck it up. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, disengagement, I have seen disengagement happen as early as, you know, the first week because people are just ignored. You know, I have clients come to me and they say, how can we increase engagement? And I, I ask questions, tell me about your onboarding process because employees, new employees are being ignored. You know, they're sitting in empty desks, their computer doesn't arrive for another week or two and nobody's paying attention to them to ask questions about their goals, their interests. So I think that's really key that if you're going to, start building a culture of humanocracy, it's kind of start the moment they walk in the building and so that you don't, you know, disengage them before they even actually become contributors of the organization. Yeah. It's a simple set of questions. You know, do people seem happy to work here? Does it seem like people care about their colleagues? Does it seem like my boss is interested in my personal success? Are they investing in my capabilities and making me smarter? Does every single employee get treated with dignity? I mean, these are things that you can suss out fairly quick. And unfortunately, you know, a lot of employees coming to work, they've also worked in organizations that beat them up and are not very human-centric. And so oftentimes they just expect you know, to be in a somewhat abusive relationship with their employer and they don't complain, but it shouldn't be that way. And when you're in a good organization, it won't feel that way. You know, it's not by accident at Southwest. They're able to, when they hire, they hire about 2% of their applicants. You know, they have that because people know how you're going to be treated there and they want to work there. And we'll come back to this later, but it's also not by accident that the stock ticker for Southwest Airlines is LUV, right? right? So, you know, it shows. (laughs) I want to uncover, and we touched a little bit about that already, the role of leadership and, and get into the mindset of leadership in humanocracy. And we will tackle that after this short message. Don't go away. Today's proud sponsor, Ally Business Coaching, is a brand that I stand behind. This leadership development firm is helping catapult companies into a brighter future with their five-star program. Through an individual customized course with live coaching, presented in virtual meeting rooms, Ally is producing spectacular results for their clients. Their ABC course sets the stage for your people to increase self-awareness, learn leadership techniques that fit their personalities, understand others better, improve communication, and build trust. Coaching has been proven to be the most effective way to improve people's abilities. And now, it's easier and more cost-effective than ever before to participate in high-level, high-value coaching. Learn more about their five-star program at www.ally.com. 
businesscoaching.com. Ally Business Coaching, building great leaders inside great companies. Okay, we're back. So Gary, what is leadership like in a humanocracy? Well, certainly some of the organizations I profile in my book, you actually have no managers at all in some of them. Morningstar, which is the largest tomato processor in the world based out in the San Joaquin Valley of California, they have about 700 employees and there are no managers at all. Employees write contracts with each other each year, laying out their responsibilities. It's a peer review process when it comes to performance and compensation. So, you know, what does it mean to be a leader in that environment? I think of the large Chinese company Hire, which I'm deeply familiar with. They have 80,000 employees. They've divided the company up into 4,000 microenterprises. And there's one management level between those frontline teams and the CEO. So when you look at these hyper-flat organizations, you really have to think differently about leader. Because the word leader, as you know, Marcel, we've totally conflated that. We've totally mixed that up with the idea of hierarchical power. So in most organizations, you know, when I, when I hear employees talk about the leadership team, I'll hear that phrase. It's like, well, who do you mean by, what, what do you mean the leadership team? Well, what they mean is the top dozen or so administrators in the company, right? The people on the management committee. And I have to say, well, first of all, probably most of them aren't actually leaders, right? They're just good bureaucrats. And secondly, I can guarantee they're not a team. If by that you mean a group of selfless people coming together to accomplish a shared purpose, they're all elbowing and fighting for the top job. So here's one way to know whether you're a leader, Marcel, and I'll add maybe one other thing to this. So one way to know you're a leader is ask yourself, if you had no positional authority, if you don't have a title after your name, and if you have no budget and you have no sanctions, you can't punish or fire something, could you still get something done in your organization? Because leaders are people who know how to make a catalytic effort with others. And they do that not on the basis of positional authority, but on the basis of being able to cast the vision, on being able to bring people together, on being able to mobilize and motivate them. Mary Parker Follett was the first probably great management guru in America, writing back in the early 20th century. And she said, the role of a leader is to create more leaders. And critically, she said, a leader seeks power with, not power over. So if you have today, if you have to use your bureaucratic power to get things done, you are probably eroding your real leadership capital. People are not going to trust you if you need to say, you know, we got to do it this way because I'm the boss or my way or the highway. So I think we have to redefine leadership as not somebody who sits in a particular position, but people who know how to motivate, bring people together, coalesce a community, get them to do amazing things. And you really only know your leader ex post when you look back and people say, gee, we couldn't have done that without Marcel. Like, Marcel was just like absolutely critical. Then you're a leader. But you're not a leader because you have a rank or because somebody in HR says you are in a leadership position. Yeah, yeah. Okay, now I'm getting excited because we're going to talk about the principles. So if I'm building a culture with humanocracy at its core, talk to us about what's in its DNA. So just a, a tiny bit of framing there. You know, one reason is it's interesting to look back over the last 50 or 60 years of organizational history, because there have been a lot of attempts to kind of roll back bureaucracy or build something better. And, you know, I'm old enough now to watch this movie kind of play through a few times. And you go back to T groups in the 70s or total quality in the 80s or reengineering in the 90s. And now we've talked about agile and mindfulness and so on. And yet when you go through that history, Marcel, you see that we never really changed much in our organizations, right? And so whatever that new thing was, within a year or two or three, it had been recolonized by bureaucracy and it kind of just been swallowed up by the beast. And so I got very curious, like, why is that? And so what you realize is 
there's some very deep principles that are baked into our organizations that are the right principles if your goal is to maximize performance. And the principles like standardization, specialization, uh, hierarchy, um, gratification, and those are the principles of bureaucracy. And they're deeply embedded in every system process, even in our thinking. And so what became apparent to me is you can't beat those deeply embedded principles by simply grafting a new practice, a new process onto that old bureaucratic rootstock. You know, the analogy that is kind of like putting a tutu on a dog. It may look interesting, but it doesn't make it a ballerina. And that's what we keep doing. We keep putting like these interesting little things on that old bureaucratic organization. So it became clear to me that we have to go back to first principles. And you reach a point in any field of human endeavor where you can't solve the new problems, like building human-centric organizations, with the old principles. So if you want to build democracy, you cannot start with the divine right of kings. Like, you're never going to get there. So we spent quite a few years looking at highly resilient systems and organizations, looking at what drives human flourishing to try to understand what's the new DNA, as you say. And there's a set of principles that I think are important to this. We won't have time to talk about them all. But one is ownership. You know, we know that 77% of Americans would rather work for themselves than anybody else. And many people do not have that opportunity. But you can build organizations where that spirit of ownership is deeply embedded. Experimentation is something else. As human beings, we love to try new things. We redecorated our houses. We were born to create in some way, whether it's our digital photos and so on. And yet, in most organizations, people have very little freedom to experiment and try new things. So experimentation is a key part of this DNA. Meritocracy, we all want to work in organizations where the best people get ahead and where your influence and your compensation is a product of your value added, not your bureaucratic skill set. We want to work in organizations that are open, that are curious, that are eager to hear new ideas and that are not closed off. We want to work in organizations that feel like communities, where there are these deep trust-based relationships and you feel like you are known and respected for who you are. So our argument is we have to go back into all those systems and processes we have, you know, how we allocate resources, how we plan, how we hire, how we compensate, and rebuild all those processes around these new principles, right? What would it mean if we were really open in our organization? What would it mean if we were trying to build something that really felt like a community? What would it mean if we looked at the company as the laboratory and we wanted to give everybody the opportunity to experiment and try new things? If you don't start with a new set of principles, it's impossible to build organizations that are really any more capable than the ones we have right now. Mm. Gary, I was intrigued by a quote. I'm going to quote you from the preface. And I think this has to do with ownership. But you write, an organization has little to fear from the future or its competitors when it's brimming with self-managing micropreneurs. Not everybody knows what a micropreneur is. For those people, what do you mean by that? So I think we have an assumption, Marcel, that larger organizations or older organizations simply can't innovate. And so over the last decades, you know, we, we celebrate all the startups that come out of Silicon Valley, particularly I think, from other places as well. But we see all these young companies that have, you know, remade our world in different ways. And yet what's interesting is by the time those companies get a few hundred employees, bureaucracy starts to set in there as well. And within a few years, they have the same layers and everything else. But what a lot of management pundits have told people is it's impossible to build a large organization that is entrepreneurial at its core. I don't agree. One of the cases that we lay out in the book I mentioned earlier is Hire, this Chinese company. And I first got to know them about a decade ago when their CEO visited me in California. And he said, Gary, I want to build a company where everyone is their own CEO. 
where people are not a means to an end, but an end in themselves. And so they've been on a 10-year quest to build an organization where everyone feels like an owner and can be an entrepreneur. And part of that, Marcel, was breaking the organization down into smaller pieces, right? You, you can't be very entrepreneurial if you're, if you're working a team or a unit of 100 people or 200 or 1,000. So they broke these down into 10, 15 person micro enterprises, they call them, hence the micropreneur, the small entrepreneur. And in each of these little businesses, the people working there have three freedoms. They have the freedom to set strategy, the freedom to hire and define roles, and the freedom to distribute rewards. These are the freedoms an entrepreneur has. If you've built your own business, these are the choices you get to make every day. Critically, all of those small units also have big financial upside. So they have some very ambitious goals they call leading targets. And if you're in one of those units and you hit those targets, you can multiply your base pay many times over. So what they said is we want everyone here to feel as if they are an entrepreneur. That means having the freedom to kind of run your own business and having a financial stake in success. 99% of employees in large organizations have neither of those things. Hmm. So what we find is when you turn that on, and, and that's not only higher, I see it in Nucor, the most successful steel company in the US. I see it in Spenska Handelsbanken, Europe's most consistently successful bank. But when on the front lines, people feel like owners, where they have the freedom and the upside, then you have an organization filled with micro-entrepreneurs. You are unleashing all of that latent capacity. And those organizations aren't afraid of anybody. They'll take on all comers, domestic and foreign, and win. Hmm. Gary, a few years ago, a very popular book was written called Holacracy, which you know proposes self-management and self-organization. What's the difference between holacracy and humanocracy? So I am not a deep student of holacracy, so I can't really speak to that in detail, but from what I know and from the organizations that have attempted to use that, you know, it starts out with a highly prescriptive model. And it's basically says just take all the structures, take all the roles, take all things and just put it on top of your organization. And I think very few companies that have experimented with it has, has it succeeded. And in fact, some have told me that it's, it is as bureaucratic as what it replaced. Mm. And people are in endless meetings and endless conversations. I don't think that it cultivates that frontline spirit of entrepreneurship. I don't think it really builds that sense of deep empowerment. Moreover, in this journey from the old model to the new model, I don't think you can just impose something as a single system. I think that's why I start with principles. When we look across the companies that I think are kind of humanocratic, they are different in many, many respects. You know, Hire in China is nothing like W.L. Gore in the U.S., which is nothing like Svenska Handelsbanken. And yet, when you strip it all away, the practices, the processes, the underlying principles are the same. So I think you have to start with the principles as an organization, then start to hack those old management processes. And I guarantee what you will end up with will be something very different from, from anybody else's management model. And in a way, that's a good thing. You know, one of the things we've learned over the last couple of decades, I've hopefully been part of helping people understand this, is that when it comes to business models, you need a differentiated business model. You, you can't produce above average returns if you have an average business model. So creating a strategy has to be an innovative app. Well, you can't win if your business model looks like everybody else's as well. It's kind of interesting, you know, 99% of organizations fit that old bureaucratic template where power trickles down, big leaders appoint little leaders, staff groups, you know, issue policies and enforce conformance, managers assign tasks, people compete for promotion. Virtually every organization you know, is running that same model. What's the chance then that you're going to beat the average if you're all running the same? So 
I think you start with principles. They're going to be very different, but there is not one model in its specifics that I think fits all organizations. And I think the holacracy was probably over-specified and over-complicated and was often, you know, people try to impose it from the top. Again, I don't think you can do it that way. I think you have to invite the whole organization. We're going to go on a journey together. We're going to take these new principles. We're going to try to apply them. We're going to learn. We're going to go forward. And if you look at any of the companies that this kind of post-bureaucratic vanguard, that's how they built their management models. They started with principles, often over five years, 10 years longer, and they just continued to flesh those out, to operationalize them. And one day you end up with a model that's nothing like anybody else's and produces a lot of competitive advantage. Mm -hmm. Gary, I think we need a story (laughs) of an organization. You've got so many examples in your book. Does one stand out that succeeded in busting bureaucracy and did it profitably? Yeah, I mean, so I mentioned Hire briefly, and, you know, a decade ago, they were a very traditional organization. Let me give you another one, the one that we worked with. We worked with Adidas in North America, the sportswear company. For years, they had lagged badly behind Nike and Under Armour in the U.S., and they had a new CEO a few years ago, Mark King, and he said, how do we move from that bureaucratic mindset to one that really focuses on innovation? So we went into Adidas and we invited 3,000 employees, basically all of the North American employees, to hack that old management model. We put up a little MOOC, a little instructional program, and each week we introduced them to one of those new principles like meritocracy and openness and experimentation. And each week we asked 3,000 employees, if we took this seriously, what would change? So somebody might say, well, gee, if we were more open, we'd share all of our salary data. Or they say, if we were more open, we'd invite customers into our product development process much earlier and involve them more deeply. Someone else might say, if we were more open, we'd open up the planning process to every employee. So every principal, people had many, many different ideas of how they might apply that. So over a few weeks, probably about 10 weeks, we had more than 9,000 of these like little mini hacks, people suggesting ways of hacking that old management model. We used typical techniques for peer review. You could ask people to review their colleagues' ideas. We got down to about 800 of the best. We then asked the people behind those, now develop this into a little experiment that we could run. How would we test your idea? I'll give you an example. One idea that came out, somebody wondered, why don't we have an internal version of Kickstarter? So if I have just a little bit of money to try something new, why do I have to fight the bureaucracy? Why do I have to like connect to the old budgeting process, get my boss's permission? Well, the, the initial experiment to test that was the simplest thing you can imagine. They put up a whiteboard in an office The leader of this team, I think about 60 people on the team, has said, okay, I'll give everybody $150 to kind of test this as a little experiment. And then they asked folks, if you have an idea that is not in the budget, just put it on a piece of paper and put it up on the whiteboard. And then if you'd like to, you know, back that, every one of you have $150, go write up your commitment, put it on the board. What are you willing to invest in that? So that thing literally took a couple of weeks. They were testing the hypothesis that there's some really great ideas out there that are not right now in our roadmap testing the idea that people make smart choices about what to invest in. Hypotheses were proven out. And subsequently to that, they went and built a really robust internal innovation marketplace. But it started with just like one little team saying, interesting idea, let's go test this. So in the end, you know, out of that came, I think the first round of experiments, they took the 20 best, they led those as real experiments. They had more than 10,000 peer reviews across the organization. So for us, you know, the way we're going to change bureaucracy, the way we're going, to, we're going to kill bureaucracy is not in one like Armageddon-like battle, but it's going to be through a lot of local skirmishes where people say, you know what, 
I don't think that works anymore. Let's try something new. If, if it succeeds, we propagate it. It scales up. If it doesn't, okay, we learn something. How do we adjust and go forward? But it's much more like waging guerrilla war against bureaucracy than trying to drop an atomic bomb on it. Yeah, yeah. Gary, I want to throw in a little devil's advocacy here, okay? So, I mean, we've been you know dismantling bureaucracy in our conversation. <laughs> and I'm wondering, is there a risk to a culture of too much uh, humanocracy. I mean, what are the if there are risks involved, what would they be? So, you know, I think there are a few risks. Certainly one risk is don't blow up something that is working, even if imperfectly, before you know you have something that works better. So I'm never an advocate. And, I, and by the way, I think that was the problem of, of some of the organizations that made a big bet on holacracy, right? They just, you got to learn your way into this thing because the systems that are there, however imperfect, they are supporting the business. So I think that's the first thing. I think you can try to move too fast, blow things up, and then you have operational chaos and people are going to say, hey, we told you, right? You can't manage without bureaucracy. So that's, I think that's one risk. I think another you know, practical thing is you have to recognize that bureaucracy had a lot of benefits. And you know, bureaucracy was invented to help us control things, to get consistency, to coordinate. And so what I say is what we want to do is we want to buy the blessings of bureaucracy but we want to buy them duty-free. There's this paradox, if you like. There's a tension. Because today I need an organization that has enormous discipline and control, but also gives people enormous freedom. I need world-beating efficiency, but also continuous rule-breaking innovation. I need to take advantage of scale and size if I can, but also have enormous flexibility. And so, you know, many organizations, they don't manage those trade-offs very well or very subtly, right? You tend to have a pendulum that erratically swings back and forth. But here's what's interesting, I think, Marcel. When you look at human beings, we are very good at managing paradox. To me, the definition of an extraordinary successful organization is one that is constantly optimizing those trade-offs in the very best possible way and often redefining them. So if you think about if you've been a parent or you've watched parents with small children, as a parent, you're constantly managing the paradox, the tension between love and discipline. So you have a toddler, they misbehave, you put the little kid in a corner, you say, you're going to sit here now for 10 minutes, I'm taking the toy away, you got to think about what you did. And before you walk away, you give the kid a kiss, which probably confuses the hell out of them, right? But you are managing that in real time because you have the data, you know what happened, was the kid up last night, were they at a party, do they have a sugar high, is this a pattern that you see now that you really have to kind of go hard on. You have all of that data. You have the best interests of your child at heart. So we trust you to make that decision. And how helpful would it be if you had like a vice president of parenting and every week, you know, you issue a report and then several weeks later says, you know, Marcel, I've noticed like tantrums are up by 20%. So we need timeouts to go up by 20%. And yet that's the way we try to manage this in organizations. So in the companies that we profile in the book, they give people on the front lines the information, the incentives, the accountability to manage these critical trade-offs right where they are. So that, I think, is the subtlety. And, and I think you can trust people to do that. And, you know, bureaucracy has so undermined the initiative and the accountability of individuals that we don't believe we can trust them anymore. We've infantilized them. And yet, in their personal lives, People every day are making difficult trade-offs. They're making smart decisions. They're innovating. And we just have to recognize that it's those same people that we can trust when they're at work. I want to go back a little bit to culture. 
And so for cultures of humanocracy, what does that do to the employee experience? I mean, how do people feel about work every day in that kind of culture? Every human being is looking for dignity and for opportunity and equity. That is where we thrive. And I would argue, and we've been having this conversation, Marcel, that many people struggle to find that at work, right? They're in jobs which are regarded as low-skilled or low-wage. Let's come back to that. But they're treated as they're this class of employees that just you know don't have any future, and you just plug them in and tell them what to do. So there's very little dignity and improve in their jobs and add more value. There's very little equity when they see all of the rewards going to a small group at the top. And so if we want to build more just and more equitable societies, I think it's very difficult to do that if work doesn't feel like a place where you get dignity, opportunity, and equity. So I think, you know, that's what you need to feel if you work in a humanocracy. And this is not about, you know, a social program. This is not about, you know, a charity. But what you find in the organizations we profile in the book, which are filled with dignity and opportunity and equity, what you find is that universally they pay more than their competitors. And not because they're generous or because they're charities. They pay more because their people are creating a lot more value. And you find that people there, you know, I, I think of Nucor, most profitable, consistently profitable, most innovative steel company in the world. You go in there and you meet blue collar, literally hard hat employees in small towns across the United States. These employees are making million dollar capital decisions. They're experimenting every day with new methods and tools. Blue collar employees are going out and meeting customers. They feel responsible for innovation. They feel responsible for growing the company. And you are turning on that capacity in people that many others would say, you know, they can't do anything more than a bare minimum. And so our organizations, thanks to that legacy of bureaucracy, our organizations are still a kind of a caste system often where there's this implicit distinction between managers, employees, the thinkers and the doers, the clever and the compliant. And that is competitively indefensible. It's economically indefensible, but I think it's kind of ethically indefensible as well. And so when you change that, you have an organization where you have incredibly knowledgeable workers who feel deeply committed to the organization, who show up every day at work eager to innovate, you know, and that's simply what happens when you start to treat people not as resources, but as human beings. So Gary, here's the million dollar question. I'm an executive and I'm buying into this whole idea. What's the first step? I think the first step is to have a conversation with people on the front lines and ask them, what do you see around you every day that is getting in the way of your capacity to succeed? What is it that is difficult that shouldn't be difficult? When you need to make a policy exception to take care of a customer, why is that so difficult? When you have an idea and you need maybe 20% of your time and a few hundred or a few thousand dollars to experiment, why is that so difficult? When you feel that you don't, in the last year, you've not had the chance to grow as an individual and learn new skills, why is that so difficult? If you feel that your leader is kind of riding you on petty things and kind of infantilizing you, tell me exactly what's happening there. Some of this is just basic common sense. You know, today, many organizations are big fans of design thinking. So am I. Well, design thinking says, let's start with the user. Let's see what they need. So go talk to the people who are out there every day creating value that are the face of your organization to customers that are, you know, the people in the call centers, in the warehouses, in the stores, wherever they are, and ask them, how do we help you do your best job? You know, everybody is eager to win. Everybody, you know, is there information that you need that you're not getting? Are there skills that you think would help you make more? So as a leader, I need to start with those individuals 
And I don't need to go to the head of HR and the head of IT and legal and whatever to decide how do I change. I need to go to people on the front lines, listen to them, hear them, and understand what they need to succeed. If you read military history, all the great generals, they didn't manage down through their staff groups or down through the ranks. They were there with the men and women on the front lines saying, what else do you need to succeed? So that's where I would start as a CEO. And then I would make a commitment, you know, whatever that is, we're going to equip you. We're going to get those things. We're going to get the other things out of the way. But you're not always going to have that kind of CEO. So you also have to ask yourself, how do I get started when I don't have that kind of progressive individual at the top? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Beautifully put, Gary. Gary, we have this tradition here on the show where we talk about the polar opposite principles of love and fear. We know that practical love works. I mean, you've already mentioned several things that leaders should do to lift people up, inspire, empower, develop, and just listen to their voice. So the evidence is there. It's overwhelming that practical love and care leads to business outcomes. But its counterpart, fear, which can show up in so many different ways, intimidation, control, coercion, you know, micromanagement is there. All these things can strip people of their ability to perform at their best, to be creative, to innovate. And yet here we are, 2020, fear is still prevalent in how companies are run. Why do you think people still lead through fear? You know, the question of why is a tough one. I certainly agree it's the case. You know, I wrote a piece quite a few years ago for Harvard Business Review called Moonshots for Managers. And one of the things I argue there is we need to rehumanize the language of business. Mm. One of the things I encourage companies to do is look at the communication that goes to employees and kind of do some semantic analysis. Look at the words that get used to get it again. And typically you see words like solution, efficiency, improvement, you know, and so on. But how often do you see words like hope like love, like courage, just like not at all. So the things that are most important to us as human beings are not showing up at work. And and I think it's a legacy, Marcel, of that early industrial age when literally the goal was to turn human beings into machines. You know, Max Weber, the famous German sociologist, he was writing in the early 20th century about bureaucracy. And he said, bureaucracy succeeds to the extent it is dehumanized. So in a bureaucracy, there was almost no room for what makes us human. There was no room for intuition, for ingenuity, for artistry, for passion, and certainly not for love. And yet, so many of the organizations we profile in the book, when you talk to the leaders and CEOs there, it just oozes that sense of concern and that sense of love. You know, the first time it hit me, I was talking to John Mackey, who was a co-founder of Whole Foods, now part of Amazon. But at the time, John Mackey said, he said, my goal from the beginning was to build a company based on love instead of fear. And I remember just as he said that, I thought to myself, how many people in organizations could stand up inside an organization and say, what we really need around here is just a lot more love, right? And it's terribly sad that our workplaces have become so banal, so like secular in a way, so engineering kind of driven that we can't use this language anymore. But I think we're going to have to. Because if you believe we live in a creative economy, which I believe we live in today, if you believe that we are up against a set of problems in our world that require every ounce of human initiative and ingenuity to solve, people are only going to bring that to work. Because those things, you know, ingenuity, passion, initiative, these are gifts which people either bring to work every day or they don't. And mostly they don't. But they're only going to bring them to work in environments where they feel like they are loved and respected and cared for. And that doesn't mean sappy. That doesn't mean you don't hold people accountable. I mean, think about how you relate to your children. You know, as your children grow up, you hold them more and more accountable. 
And there are penalties when they make stupid choices, right? Right. And yet, throughout all of that, you love them without question. And I think somehow we've gotten this idea that, you know, love and accountability are mutually exclusive or love and discipline. No, no, no. Real love understands that for people to succeed, you need to have discipline. They need to be accountable. But it's there underneath them, giving them that security to take risks and to try and pick themselves up when they fail. Mm. So, you know, what I've seen in these organizations is people are not afraid to talk about love. And there's extraordinary degree of compassion that just oozes out. Just a few days ago, I was talking to John Ferriola, who just retired from being the CEO at Nucor, the steel company I mentioned about 20-something billion dollar steel company. He said that at Nucor, being a manager is the least noble thing you can do. That's the people on the front lines. And if you talk to people at that company, like Southwest, they'll tell you again and again, it feels like family here. So I think somehow we have to find within ourselves. And by the way, we all want that love in our personal lives. We give it to our partners, our families, whatever. It's not like we can't do this at work. We just have to get over the embarrassment and these bad habits we've fallen into of trying to... Today, a lot of people talk about work-life balance. I like to talk about work-soul integration, right? Work should neither overwhelm the personal, but neither should it not recognize it. And I think we've often been told that we can't bring that personal part of ourselves to work. You know, Gallup's data says only two out of 10 employees have a close friend at work. That's a disaster, yeah. Right. If you have a child caught in addiction, if you're going through a divorce, if you have a parent who's dying, if you've gotten a bad medical diagnosis and you're showing up at work and you have to be there eight or 10 hours and you have no one to share with, no one to be human with, that is bad for you. It's bad for your organization. It's bad for your work. And so we have to recognize that our organizations have to be fully human. We just have to get over that and say, guys, we got to have the courage and the guts to stand up and talk about these things at work and recognize it and drive out that kind of engineering mechanistic view of human beings that sabotages us at every turn. Yeah. And it's funny. I um, often think that we compartmentalize our lives too much where we, we have the mask that we put on, the boss mask. And then when we leave work, we put on the dad mask and we have to be able to blow that out and just be fully integrated, like you said, as a human being, where we just show up with who we truly are as a leader, as a parent, as a a spouse, as a community leader, etc. People need to see all parts of us, especially in the workplace. Yeah, and I think I said in the book, I think, you know, sadly, I think kind of bureaucracy makes assholes of us all. You find yourself behaving at work in ways you simply wouldn't with your friends or your family and so on. And part of that is the mask and you know, part of that is sometimes treating other people in a not-so-respectful way. But, you know, the idea of love is so important, Marcel. You know, I have a pretty deep spiritual faith, and I believe that I have an accountability to love the people around me, race, creed, gender, income, success. It really doesn't matter. And if you operate out of that belief, there are three things that you think about in your interactions with every other human being. Number one is, how do I ennoble them? right? How do I never look down? How do I never make a judgment about me versus them or how important or senior or, or rich or credentialed? But how do you lift everybody up in their own role in their own life? Number two, you think about empower. You know, what do you do to help them have more agency and more power to do the things that they need to do to become better human beings and to succeed? So how, whatever influence, whatever power I have, how do I share it? How do I give it away? Or how do I help them learn how to have more power in their lives? So then the third thing you think about is embrace. How do I come to this person? Like, by the way, I'm not suggesting we should have like unwanted hugs or maybe no hugs at all right now. But how do you come to people with that attitude of, I want to build community. I want to know you. 
you know, again, John Ferriol at Newcore, he said something very simple and very practical that all of your listeners, I think, could, could take away and use. He said when, the first time he has an interaction with anybody at Newcore, this has been true for his whole career, but an employee, he said, in the first meeting, I only talk about them. And I don't talk about our business. I don't talk about their job. I want to know who they are, what's their story, what are their dreams, their hopes, and so on. But I really want to know who they are. He said, in the second conversation, I'll talk about me, but not in like who I am and what I've done. I want to talk about my vulnerabilities, my fears, so they see the human side of me. He said, in the third meeting, we will talk about work, but then I'm only going to talk about what I can do to help them succeed. It is a noble, it is empower, and it is embrace. And if you think about those three things every day in every interaction, you will build a different sort of workplace and you'll build different sorts of relationships with people without doubt. Mm. Wow, Gary, talking to you has been sort of an, a spiritual experience for me. So before we bring it home, is there any question that I should have asked that I didn't that we need to cover? Well, maybe one question is, yes. what do you do if you're stuck a few levels down in an organization that really is still in that old bureaucratic mold, right? What do you do as a single individual? You know, I think it's so easy for us to feel helpless in organizations because we've been trained that if you want to do anything, you've got to go ask permission. And I'll close with a very brief little anecdote from my book. A wonderful woman that I've gotten to be friends with, Helen Bevan. Helen works in the middle of the National Health Service in Britain, 1.7 million employees, as bureaucratic as they come. And a few years ago, she realized that a lot of her colleagues were frustrated that often serving bureaucracy took precedent over serving patients. And they did the simplest little thing. They put up a little pledge sheet online where anybody working for the NIH could pledge something they could do within their job to improve patient care. And they didn't get anybody's permission to do this. They called it change day and they just put it out and said, like, make a pledge. And within three months, they had almost 190,000 pledges. And the next year they ran it, they had 800,000 pledges. And that became the single largest change program in the history of the NHS. And it was done by one person, well, small, about seven or eight people, a little team of people using a simple online platform, never asked permission, thing grew like wildfire. And so if you're frustrated a few levels down in the organization, what I would say is read the book, try to get smarter about these things, but then hack that old model right where you are in your team. Take one of those principles and say, if I want more openness here, I want more experimentation, I want more meritocracy, what can I do right inside of my team? Ask the people around you, get some ideas, and try a little experiment. Have some clear hypotheses, know what you want to measure, but try something within the perimeter of your permissions and see what happens, and then go talk about it. Because I often work near the top of organizations, I'll have young people or more junior employees say, Gary, you know, will you help us pitch something? Or And I almost always say no, because I not want to be helpful. But I, I say, you know, there's a reason leaders say no often to new ideas. The fact of the matter is 90% of new ideas are probably not that good, right? It's just like, that's the reality of innovation. And so before you take that to your leader, don't go up, go sideways. See if you can find five or six people to show up on a Saturday morning, help you build out an idea, build a prototype, test something, run an experiment, and then once you've done something, take 10 of you and go in and talk to you. Show them what you've done and tell them what you need to do next to scale this up. And I said, if you do that, you're going to win a lot of battles. You'll have a lot of success. So don't go up, go sideways, but never, ever think about yourself as helpless. When you look at the people who change the world, they are not people who have positional authority, but they're people who have courage, they have compassion, and they know how to build community around them. If you learn how to do that, you're a leader you can make a disproportionate difference in your organization like Helen Bevan 
whatever your job, whatever your formal power, that will become irrelevant to the kind of difference you can make. Mm. Gary, finally, you end this episode your way with that one thing, your most important takeaway that we can uh, bring with us to make a difference in our lives. When you go to work, don't accept the status quo, right? Don't just sit there and say, you know what? It sucks. It can't be any better. This is how work is. So I think we have to learn to trade our kind of indifference for a little bit more indignation and say, no, it doesn't have to be this way. Writing more than 200 years ago, Thomas Paine, who was a great political theorist behind both the U.S. and the French revolutions, he said, a long habit of thinking over time, you start to believe that something is right, even when it isn't. You just fall into that habit of acceptance. And that's what we have to get out of, right? We just have to say like, no, I'm not going to work in an organization that wastes human capacity. I have a responsibility to start to change this where I am. So think like a hacker, think like an activist, don't think like an employee. Mm. And think with humanocracy in mind, the book, that's the title of the book, Humanocracy, Creating Organizations as Amazing as the People Inside Them. He is Gary Hamill, and I so appreciate learning from your wisdom, and thank you for joining us today. It's been truly inspirational to talk to you. My pleasure, Marcel. I thank you so much for taking your time. Gary, if people want to connect with you, where do they go? Uh, easiest way is to find me at GaryHamill.com. You can get in touch, ask me a question if you like. You'll find a lot of free stuff there. I guess the only thing to buy there is maybe the book, but we are going to buy in uh, late July. We will have a course of four hours of instructional content, help you learn how to hack management in your organization. It's free. You can use it. You can use it with your team. So go out and change the world and connect with us through GaryHamill.com and we'll keep you in touch with new tools, techniques, videos, whatever we're generating. A big thank you to today's sponsor, Ally Business Coaching. I'm in deep gratitude to this amazing organization. This show, in fact, would not be possible without their support. When it comes to optimizing performance, it's all about maximizing potential of your leaders. Ally Business Coaching can give you the practical edge you seek. Ally Business Coaching, building great leaders inside great companies. If you need high-level executive and leadership coaching, they're one of the best in the business. Visit them at ally, A-L-L-Y, businesscoaching.com. Hey, Love and Action Nation. If you're enjoying the format of the show and the topics we talk about, and you want to bring this conversation to your company event or conference, I would love to explore the possibilities. Whether it's speaking or moderating a live discussion or a Q&A panel, or even producing a series of podcasts before and after your event, let's talk. You can reach me by email personally at marcel at loveinaction.club. That's Marcel, M-A-R-C-E-L, at loveinaction.club.